Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Al Horner. On the show this week, we're going downtown with Edgar Wright and Co. in Last Night in Soho. We're going down the rabbit hole in the Argentine thriller Azor. And in Film Club, we're going back to the 60s for Mario Barber's influential proto-slasher Blood and Black Lace. We'll also get the lowdown on the Climate Crisis Film Festival, all coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back, listeners. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. And welcome back, David Jenkins. David, it feels like only yesterday we were talking at the London Film Festival. How have you been? It's been about a week or so since that finished. Yeah, no, pretty good, pretty good. I uh, I came down with the, uh, the, uh, the the horrible cold that people seem to be having. Um, right, and, I, and I got that right in the middle of the festival, so that knocked out some, some biggies for me, um, which I'm, I'm not bitter about you know no cause to mention it straight at the top of a, of a podcast you know um uh yeah and then straight straight off the london film festival to putting the uh most the current issue of uh, little white lies to bed sent sent it to the princes on tuesday evening um in fact it went it went to press one minute before our screening of the eternal started at the um science museum so that was a nice little treat message to get just as as the lights were going down on on the on chloe jail's the Eternals. so um yeah so that issue will be announcing in the in early early november it's a banger i think can't wait to hear more i'm on the edge of my seat <laughs> waiting to find out what the film is for this issue and also al horner it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast first time guest loved your work but please Introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you, Al? <laughs> Thanks, Michael. I'm Al Horner. I'm a journalist. I write for The Guardian, the BBC, GQ, Empire, List White Lies, and I'm also the host of Script Apart, which is a podcast in which great screenwriters uh, revisit their first drafts of beloved movies. Who have you had on the podcast so far, if you wanted to get people's uh, taste buds going? Oh, God. Uh well, we've been going for two years, and in that time, we've had Aaron Sorkin, we've had Barry Jenkins, uh, we have had Edgar Wright, who is, of course, mm-hmm. the uh, someone who's going to come up in today's episode. Uh, yeah, we've had Pixar's Megalophove. I could go on and on. It's uh, yeah, it's been been a fun fun couple of years. It's such a cool podcast. I'd strongly recommend listening to it. But Al, we'll have to see whether you'll be on script or off script with the reviews this <laughs> week. We might as well kick off. Straight away, with our first film of the week, Last Night in Soho. (laughs) 
Right, so let's start off with a quick brief synopsis for Last Night in Soho. In director Edgar Wright's psychological thriller, Eloise, an aspiring fashion designer, is mysteriously able to travel back in time to the 1960s, where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer, Sandy. But the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something far darker. So, Al, this is Last Night in Soho, the latest from Edgar Wright, a filmmaker that many of us have had long histories with. He's darted between various genres, putting his stamp on them. Is this something a bit different for him? How does it pan out? Yeah, it is. It's, um, I mean, in some ways it very much uh, bears his his stamp, but in other ways it feels like uh, Baby Driver, which was his last film, was his biggest kind of like box office success to date. And you can really tell that uh, that gave him a license to do what he wanted, essentially, this time round. And the result is a film that is a bit different for him. It's way less popcorny than a lot of people would uh, typically expect from Edgar. And yeah, I think it would be a bit more divisive than his usual stuff, which is a bit more kind of crowd pleasing. Um, but yeah, it's it's not Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not the the Cornetto trilogy. Um, it's it's a love letter to a different part of his kind of like film uh his, his film love and his the the sort of cinema that he adores uh yeah i mean edgar's a funny one I, I feel like his movies are often kind of love letters to the genres and directors that he loves and much more so than his uh you know perhaps more so than any other part of his kind of like filmmaking prowess that might be his superpower he's he seems to have this encyclopedic knowledge of uh, different parts of film history, no matter how obscure, and he pulls on them really nicely. The difference here, I suppose, is that typically he's pulled from things that audiences kind of know up front and that have been kind of blockbustery, very kind of entertainment driven. Here he's pulling from something that I think is not gonna be something that audiences are necessarily as familiar with. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the what the reaction is because of that but personally for me I, I, this this film did really click with me i really enjoyed it yeah as al says david this is pulling from a very particular you know strain of filmmaking perhaps a lot of italian giallo films from the 60s we'll be talking about blood and black lace later which i believe is one film that edgar's been on record as saying you know inspired this film what did you make of this also as the resident london boy uh, this is a love letter to Edgar's home of many years. Uh, how does it play as a London film, too? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I well, firstly, I'll just say I, I definitely, I kind of agree with what, what Al was saying there, that um, I think that as a kind of idiosyncratic, very kind of almost old-school auteurist talent, Edgar Wright definitely is someone who is like a force for good for me, and he is, he is sort of plowing his own furrow he and and like i guess it's 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 always heartening and night and and good to see someone who has who is kind of parlaying their own passions into their projects um the things he you know like there's so much kind of studio stuff that is that is very anonymous and is 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 very sort of almost quite quite hermetically sealed in that sense and his, 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 even going back to the films like things like Spaced, which is like packed with uh, with 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 like movie movie references. I mean, I think that you know that 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 is the sort of through line of all of all of his work, really. That kind of love of of genre and cinema and and references and 
and even down to the kind of granular aspect of like camera movements and framings and lights and I mean every he's sort of pu pulling in all that stuff from this kind of as you say encyclopedic knowledge he has um as a London film yeah I mean I'd say maybe I'd give it maybe a six out of ten uh, <laughs> on on one aspect I'd say it was nice to see that like so I, I used to work on Tottenham Court Road right sort of you know parallel to Charlotte Street and you know next to Gooch Street where a lot of the film takes place um there's this little alleyway called Percy Passage that we we I, I would go down a lot um and and it was it was lovely to see Percy Passage in a film <laughs> I don't I don't think you got to see that the actual road name on it um but it's the it's it's a little alleyway that runs parallel to Newman the Newman Arms where the the, the sort of uh, I think it's called like Newman Alley which is the passageway from um Peeping Tom as well so you know all, all that kind of cinephile stuff is in there um but then I, there, there's that kind of niggly thing as well about the geography doesn't always kind of work there's a sort of sequence in the end where Thomas and Mackenzie's character is kind of herring around Soho and at one point she's like in Charlotte Street and then it cuts and then she's in Soho Square and it's like hold on a second you know like it, I mean I know it's editing and you could and that's all about <laughs> time and temporal disjuncture and all that but it's I, I do I do get, get a great satisfaction from like the feeling of like you you you, you know a, a character has moved from x to y in a kind of in the way that they would do that you know it's, it's it's almost like coming if you go up percy passage this way then you wouldn't be coming down um dean street this way kind of thing you know <laughs> um so, so this this is I, I i this is beyond nitpicking i think <laughs> but londoners love to nitpick don't they indeed um, yeah, we do. Not the whole to... website's dedicated to the impossible geography of london films i think the worst the worst offender is um 28 weeks later there's a scene where they're driving through London and it's like, turn left here. And it's Wembley Stadium. Okay, now do it right. And it's like Trafalgar Square. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's, there is the classic in the second Thor movie, isn't there, where he gets the tube and he, does he go from Charing Cross to North Greenwich or something like that? And they say, just you can get, get this one tube there. Or, <laughs> there are lots of people who are very upset about that uh -uh. On, on Twitter. Um, but David, Al said that this clicked for him in the end, and I suppose as a psychological thriller, this, there's a lot of twists and turns. Of course, we don't want to reveal, reveal any spoilers, but is this something that uh, land, sticks the landing for you, this film? Well, I, I'll, I'll talk quite broadly about it because I don't, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, like, spoil it for anyone because, um, but this this one, this one really didn't land for me, I, I have to say. Um, I think what i found interesting about the film i it, I, it was definitely it was a, a very categorical film of two halves for me um i saw this in venice and i remember feeling in the first half of the film i was really like I, I was really tickled and wrapped up in the idea that 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 he had actually made a film that was quite important and sort of socially conscious and dealing with some issues that were quite stark and and quote unquote relevant um about um 
sex work about kind of anxieties that young women would have around men in the city or you know exploitation um also this idea of like um historical um abuse being kind of like dredged up in in the present and how how you know that that's sometimes discounted and and there's an element of the film that is kind of saying well these things if these things happen they're real and the time that passes doesn't really matter but it's a it's a hard thing for people to actually comprehend which is kind of what the film is about in a sense and then it kind of hit a point at the mid about midway where it just really skewed away from that and went off into this kind of quite sort of i mean it embraced the sort of uh the, the mechanics of the of the classic giallo film which is very much a very kind of convoluted whodunit plot that is that that doesn't really say much beyond the kind of clever clever wrapping up of oh it was x it was y it was you know this person came from here to save this person and at the last minute and you know it it it, it all kind of unraveled quite spectacularly in the second half i have to say um and uh, what do you make of that? And also, I suppose this is a route into talking almost about the screenwriting behind this, which is your bread and butter. Uh, this is the first time uh, Edgar's worked with Christy Wilson Cairns. And it's something I've been a fan of his films for, and his TV series for you know, since I was a kid. Uh, but he has always had a very, let's say, masculine blokey sensibility because he's working with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost over and over mm. again, or his own point of view. This is his first film with a female protagonist, dual female protagonist, and what what does that change? But overall, did, how did that second half work for you? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I'll speak to a couple of things. First and foremost, it, I, I, I anticipated... I mean, Christie's an amazing screenwriter. I loved her work on 1917. She's done some incredible uh, TV work. She's going to kind of elevate any script, and I'm sure is a great collaborator to have, no matter what the project is. But... This is a film that specifically needed, like, a female voice. You could not, like, morally, ethically go into this territory, I don't think, without sort of uh, working with someone who could bring some authority to to that subject. And, yeah, it's a film that demanded, a, a, like, a female co-writer. Um, the sex work stuff that um, David mentioned... I would say is a little bit thinly sketched perhaps and and might be sort of one of the more divisive elements of the film um in terms of like how it all kind of fits together uh, we we spoke to edgar ed came on edgar's recorded an episode of um edgar and christy have both come on script apart to to sort of dissect the film and edgar was saying that sort of i i asked about that sort of sense that, that david mentioned of like it kind of being that it's sort of flitting through genres and he said that's by design like the each act is supposed to sort of feel like a different genre and have a different style and by the third act it very much sort of yeah just completely opens up into a, a straight up horror that's what's been marketed it's been quite interesting especially now since uh, since the film's moved to sort of a halloween kind of uh release window the trailers have been kind of very horror led that doesn't really come into the third act, not to spoil anything. Um, but yeah, I I can see why the third act for some people it hasn't it doesn't stand up or it, it sort of falls falls apart a little bit. For me, like for me, the, the the joy of the film is very much in the the sort of first and second act 
like the the stylistic touches that um, Edgar brings to to the film. There's there's these amazing scenes where visually he's able to bring this concept to life. This idea of like again without spoiling too much, uh, you know, a girl in sort of present day living another life and um, experiencing that other life kind of vicariously. He has this incredibly uh, smart way of dealing with that and sort of choreographing that through mirrors. And there's one scene in particular where that all kind of unfolds and, and opens out and it's so beautifully done that you imagine very much that, uh, you know, the idea, that visual idea might have led the kind of entire concept for the film. To me, that's the kind of real, like that was the part of the film that I absolutely fell in love with. The ending didn't particularly, uh, or the, the third act didn't particularly bother me. I can see how for some people it comes out of the blue a little bit and, and does feel kind of like it's airlifted in from another movie. For me, it kind of, uh, yeah, wraps things up satisfyingly, in, in a satisfying way from a, like a plot perspective, perhaps not so much like thematically. There is so much kind of rich material to do with exploitation of women and so on that uh, the film kind of like puts to one side to kind of deliver an explosive finale. But um, yeah, for, for me, like I was just so kind of like wrapped up in, in the fun of it that um, it didn't work, it, it, that, it, that it didn't matter. Um, in terms of other caveats, I suppose, like and going back to what you were saying about like how great a London film this is, the the sort of the lack of representation, I suppose, is like an interesting one. There's only real really one uh, non-white character in the film and he doesn't really get an awful lot to do um so that was that was kind of a curious thing that pulled me out of it a, li a little bit but um mm. aside from that like yeah i just kind of like sat in a little daydream watching this and was completely wrapped up in the fantasy of it and it was nice to see edgar kind of like stretching his wings a little bit it was nice to sort of see him pushing into new territory for him and um Although, yeah, I can see for I can see how for some the third act will seem a little bit kind of like, huh, where did that come from? Uh, for me, it was it was it was fun and it was surprising and um, and yeah, I was okay with it. Yeah, I've said I think I've said on this podcast before that with in the late nineties when space came along, I was at a very impressionable age, and the whole worldview that that series contained and all the many pop culture references was very much almost like a big brother, big sister kind of relationship, formed very much that with Simon Pegg, Jessica Hines and Edgar Wright for me. And that's what's one of the joys of Edgar Wright's films is you can come away with a list of, be it songs or films or whatever, actors sometimes that you want to go and go down the rabbit hole even further with. And luckily on this episode, we're going to be talking about Blood and Black Lace later if you wanted to go deeper down the rabbit hole of... Uh, lurid, vibrantly coloured giallo films but let's put some scores on Last Night in Soho Al, I'll come to you first so we give three scores in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect out of five I would say it's fours across the board yeah, I mean I was, I was I'm always uh, excited for, for an Edgar Wright film I actually sort of went into this one pretty much like by by design not knowing anything about it edgar's at that point now where as david said there's like an auteurish kind of quality to him where people turn up because it's an edgar film like there are stars in this movie but i think the main draw and the, the main way it's kind of being marketed is this is edgar wright he's back with a new film um 
so yeah anticipation was high the 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 kind of like thrill ride of it i was kind of yeah i was just in on this it was fine it was great so um yeah four 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 david yeah i'd probably say despite the fact that i wasn't a i i I wasn't a major fan of baby driver (laughs) I still, I still like Edgar and his films enough to, um, to say that I was, you know, I had anticipation for this, especially as this was a London film. I remember actually being in Soho when it was being shot and seeing it a couple of times, uh, seeing the set, uh, shoot, them shoot on location. So it was quite, you know, quite exciting to see this one. So probably four in excitement, uh, sorry, in, in, in anticipation. Um, enjoyment, yeah, very, as I say, I think he's a, an amazing technician. I think all those scenes with the mirrors and the sort of set, the sort of stylistic set pieces are fantastic. And he, he knows how to kind of move the camera in that kind of balletic way. And, you know, he, he is this kind of ace technician, but I just think that the, the story, the meat, the themes, the substance is, is lacking. And yeah, uh, probably a two in retrospect. I, I've, it's a film that I found the more I kind of ponder the more I can, it's it's easier to pick holes in it than it is to, to kind of think. Oh, actually, no, I maybe got that wrong, or I maybe want to check that out again. Um, it, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I, sad to say, it just it it's not one that really worked for me in the end. <laughs> and you reviewed the film on the website, didn't you? So we can go and see your written out thoughts there if we yeah. want to go deeper but I, I've not had a chance to see this one yet almost symbolically since I've moved out of London I found it very hard to watch this London film <laughs> um, so I, I can say my anticipation is high and I'll give the opportunity to shout out Edgar Wright's other film he released earlier this year The Sparks Brothers which we talked about on this podcast and had Edgar on as well amazing that he's able to pivot from music documentary to psychological thriller within six months but that is Last Night in Soho. Listeners, if you do watch that this weekend, let us know what you think at the usual channels at Lies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Up next, we have a festival favourite, Azor. So before we move on, just wanted to tell you about some nationwide screenings and events coming up that we think are very exciting. The BFI are presenting a major UK-wide celebration of the career of multi-award winning writer-director Mike Lee, one of Britain's most internationally recognised and critically acclaimed filmmakers working today. Highlights of the celebration include a complete film season at BFI Southbank running from 18th of October to 30th of November, including Q&As with Mike Lee himself and special guests including Alison Steadman, David Thewlis, Leslie Sharp, Phil Daniels, Ruth Sheen, Imelda Staunton, Jim Broadbent and many others, plus a selection of work chosen from other filmmakers as picked by Mike. Also, Naked is released in UK cinemas on 12th of November, and both Naked and Mike Lee's debut, Bleak Moments, are available on Blu-ray for the first time from 22nd of November. Also, there'll be a curated Mike Lee collection available to UK-wide audiences on BFI Player. And it gives me great pleasure to say that Home Manchester, although I'm a Salfordian, as is Mike Lee, will also run a Mike Lee season from 7th of November to the 30th of November. Go to bfi.org.uk slash Mike Lee for full details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A bit of plot synopsis for Azor here. Argentina, 1980. Private banker Ivan arrives from Geneva to replace a colleague who has mysteriously disappeared in military-ruled Buenos Aires. Moving through a society under surveillance, he finds himself untangling a sinister web of colonialism, high finance, and a nation's dirty war. David, this is a simmering thriller about private banking in a military junta. So is that a good way of describing this? That, That is my kink. You basically described my kink there. Um, yeah, that's that's the perfect that's the perfect landing. I, I mean, yeah, I, I I think that the um, yeah I, I I was I was a big fan of this film. I I'd sort of seen it sort of hyped a little bit, and I'd seen some people say it's quite boring. In fact, my my colleague Hannah, if you don't mind me uh, bigging her up here, she uh, she 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 wasn't she 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 didn't didn't manage to engage with this this one. Um, and and you know what watching it you can kind of see why because it is quite kind of it's very laconic it's very slow burn um not necessarily in a kind of slow cinema long ponderous scenes of of scenery kind of way but more it's just sort of quite involved uh tonally um quite neutral um film uh where you have these kind of lengthy dialogue scenes um that you kind of ha- you you really have to sort of like latch onto and engage with, yeah. It's um, it's it, it's just following this guy and he's kind of searching. He, he, it's the setup is he's searching for his missing partner, and you don't really know why the partner's gone missing, and you don't really know whether he was a good guy or a bad guy, or if he'd done some good stuff and or some bad stuff, and people like him, some people hate him, and. And this this kind of character you're with is kind remains very uh, he's he's either very sort of furtive about what his feelings or just is not having those feelings and is kind of more interested in his own business and banking and actually trying to kind of satisfy the clients that have been left in the lurch by his partner's disappearance. Um, 
it's got a kind of i mean the thing that the thing that it reminded me of the most was like a kind of jean le carré kind of spy movie Mm -hmm. like lots of kind of quite dour conversational almost sort of like very much sort of eliding you know philosophy and feelings and all about process and all about the kind of grim mechanics of everything of, of banking of politics of relationships of of partnerships of you know of of, of business like and you, you know you you kind of like it really kind of sticks to its guns on that remit and i, I think by the end it kind of ends quite it's a film that ends quite suddenly it's and 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 at the end you kind of like think oh, okay well that's it's not necessary it's one of those films where where it wasn't it wasn't about the journey it wasn't about the destination it was about the journey kind of thing um and um and yeah i just i just found it really engrossing like re- like you know it, it started i was you know p- p- picked up on the thread quite quickly and then i just sort of like I was kind of there with it, really. Um, yeah, if if you get on its wavelength, it is proper edge of your seat stuff. And the way I would describe it is, you know how the Tom Hardy film Lock made you care about concrete and concrete pores <laughs> and construction work and made that feel mm. like the highest stakes thrills? In this one, you'll be leaning forward and saying, oh, they're going to float their money on the Forex. <laughs> it really makes you care about banking within its hour and 40 minutes. Um, Al, what did you make of this? Yeah, again, it took me a little while to latch onto it and to realise that there's the the sort of desiccated kind of feel of of like the backdrops in this film, like this really stately pace of it. That's by design, and like I, th- I think like the it's such a patient film. It doesn't really announce itself as this kind of like big thriller. It, it's kind of it, it it's kind of like this conspiracy unfolds bit by bit through all these kind of unnerving conversations with with these wealthy clients who have these kind of unreadable faces it really takes its time and you know the the, the title uh, from what i'm aware i don't speak you know the language but um the title is literally translated from from swiss banking code for for be quiet supposedly and and that's kind of like purposefully done like this is a movie about like the violent silencing that needs to take place to keep to kind of like keep power structures in place throughout the world not just through banking and as a result like there's this like stifling air of oppression that just sits through the entire film and bleeds into the pacing of the film like the the sort of backdrops it's all very kind of like stifled and muted by design and for the first sort of 15 20 minutes you perhaps don't realize that and you're looking for more imagination and but but when you realize that that's kind of there's a marriage there between like concept and execution it kind of clicks into place in in a really nice way and uh yeah by the end of it i was kind of leaning in as you say michael yeah i was kind of engrossed and i did not expect that absolutely and yeah all of these uh, frames of references we can put it within kind of maybe useful but it is something so unique. So Thomas Alfredson's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy from a few years ago, which really took its time, took itself ser- very seriously and dr- dramatically, but and it didn't have any of the bells and whistles maybe of thrillers of the day. Um, I've seen this referred to as a apocalypse now, heart of darkness type tale, but it's probably you know, it de- definitely is that. It's going deeper and deeper into this dark heart of 
corruption and uh, military, you know, military ruled um, dystopian South American country very much fits in with this wonderful, like fascinating wave of literature and filmmaking coming out of the continent of reckoning with these uh, the, the powers that have, have been over the last 30, 40 years. In, and most recently on the podcast, we spoke about Michel Franco's New Order. And this is almost like the exact flip of that while doing something very similar. Um, that one, that film kind of maybe boiled over a bit too much. And this one is so restrained and subtle, um, but worth seeing, I think. Let's put some scores on this. David, what would you give Azor? I'd probably, yeah, I'd pro- I th- I'm trying to remember. I think I gave it a three in anticipation because it, I think it is one of those films that, um, you, you you know, you, you kind of have to sort of prep yourself for when you kind of read the, the blurbs and the, the notices from, from its various kind of festival engagements. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure which way it was going to go. And it's a, fir- you know, it's a first time filmmaker as well. Um, and yeah, four, fours for, for enjoyment in retrospect. Um, I'll just add to to your kind of list of references. Um, I've, and I, I know I've already thrown Jean Le Carré in the mix. And what with this being the kind of Edgar Wright episode, I think we're allowed to just chuck chuck mm-hmm. some more names in. But <laughs> actually, in a weird way, this 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 really reminded me of a kind of um, David, like very very sort of David Lynch. Um, I, I'd sort of I've been recently rewatching a lot of Lynch and. I, th- I think that that sort of term Lynchian is is used in a very kind of broad way. Mm-hmm. Basically, if any film is vaguely weird, it's Lynchian, <laughs> or has anything that's vaguely experimental, it's vaguely Lynchian. But for my 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 kind of take on Lynchian is very much this idea of like the sort of the the, the sort of society that is happening, the, the sort of part of part of life or society that you see, and the kind of intimated society that is kind of underneath it that is kind of terrifying and scary and you you can't even kind of comprehend almost it's like you know the the idea in like blue velvet of like the picket picket fence suburbia and the little chirping sparrows but then underneath you have the frank booths in this kind of underworld and i think this ver this film very much captures that kind of dual world of like you're seeing one world but you're constantly being told told about and informed about this other festering world underneath that you're kind of that is actually kind of unnerving and terrifying so um it's got it really you know it took a while for that to kind of come through but by by the sort of last third of the film you i really got a sense of like yeah this is yeah, and I, I think that, that's a fair comparison. The, there are some dialogue scenes where there's this <laughs> lingering threat and you're not really sure what it is, which reminds me of some of those scenes in Mulholland Drive, you know, off, you know the, the boardroom scenes and conversations. Um, Al, what scores would you give us all quickly? Uh, anticipation 2. I mean, Andreas Fontana's a first-time director, I believe, and I wasn't familiar with his work, so I'd heard a little bit of buzz about it, so was was vaguely excited, but wasn't like, Swiss banking thriller, sign me <laughs> up. Um, but yeah, once I once I sort of got in the room and uh, the metaphorical room, I watched it at home in my bedroom. Uh, yeah, for for it was uh, by the end, I was like just absolutely submerged in that world, and uh, yeah, on tenterhooks. So 
Nice one, Andreas. <laughs> yeah, three, four, four from me. <laughs> I'd read some very strong uh, reviews for this out of the festivals over the early part of the year and was keen to watch it. And it you know, may not be for everybody, but if you get on the wavelength, I think it's one of the best of the year, I'd say. And that was Azore, which is in cinemas up and down the country this week. Check your local listings. It's a strong recommendation from us. Up next, since Edgar Wright has clearly been inspired by it, we're going back to Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. This is a wonderful synopsis from Arrow, who put out Blood and Black Lace very recently. The Christian haute couture fashion house is home to models and backstabbing and blackmail and drug deals and murder. Having established a template for the giallo with the girl who knew too much, Mario Bava set about cementing its rules with blood and black lace. Spearheading the giallo genre, it would become a prototype for the slasher movie and have a huge effect on filmmakers as diverse as Dario Argento and Martin Scorsese. David, I'll come to you first. I can't recall if we've done a Giallo film in the past on the podcast. Should we quickly run through what a Giallo film is for people who may not know? Yeah, I'll try. I'm not. I'm not. I would have to. I have to say it's the the definition is very loose. I'm not. I wouldn't say I was in like a hundred percent sure myself. Mm-hmm. To be honest, um, it, it is. It is a. My, it is one of those genres that's it. been cobbled together, isn't it? Um, with very various yeah. films. I think if I'm watching a Diallo, my expectations would be that it's very high style. It's going to have a kind of often soundtrack by the band Goblin, <laughs> which is uh, uh, Dario Argento's <laughs> band. Although this one, this one isn't, but it has a kind of um, it definitely has a sort of like rock, rocky rather than classical skewed soundtrack. Um lots of red purple lights blue lights um kind of like it's it's very expressionistic um and yeah very violent very very kind of leering in terms of its uh sort of focus on the violence and bloodletting itself uh interested in the color of blood um and often come with these quite sort of hokey plot lines <laughs> i found that uh almost feel like a little bit of an excuse to actually for the for the for these amazing stylist directors to actually go hog wild with their um with their style mm. so um so yeah um and i think you know blood and black lace really fits that yeah i think it's 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 description. put put in place as sort of a proto giallo film it, it's, it's kind of hard to know where that genre really begins but this one's definitely one of the starting points the word giallo is taken from the color of the pulpy detective murder mystery novels that you'd find in italy back in the day and but after films like this it is that lurid colors often the gloved hand often some sort of erotic sort of sexual subversive element as well really strongly recommend going out and reading the work of alan jones who's probably at the forefront of English language criticism of Italian cinema in the mid-20th century. And of course, then Dario Argento does films in that genre, often have very convoluted titles as well as plot lines. Um, but it's all about those sequences of of violence and murder, really. Al, what did you make of this? Have, are you familiar with this genre of filmmaking? Uh, yeah, vaguely. But usually when I go back to it, 
it's usually sort of like I, I'm, I'm able to appreciate the sort of piece in the jigsaw that 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 these films are in terms of leading to a lot of genres that you know i actively love today like you know i think um it was very influential in in kind of term, in terms of like setting up the slasher movie that is you know dominant today and um so i was i was kind of expecting to sort of appreciate this from like a sort of historical sense but i actually found myself really kind of uh just entranced by it it's such a beautiful film like the, the the sort of setting of the fashion house just allows well a so many mannequins mannequins are just inherently creepy and b just so much like color and vibrancy and there's one particular scene in in which there's like i think it's sort of set in the kind of like basement of the kind of uh sort of opulent fashion house that this a lot of this film unfolds in and during a party and there's there's all these kind of like lights that flicker and the way that sort of like the the murder that then ensues kind of like uh uses these lights to build tension it, like there's a lot going on here that's just so stylistic and so smart and um yeah because of uh a weird sort of scheduling thing and other deadlines and all this sort of thing the only time i could watch it was uh yesterday morning at 6 a.m <laughs> and it was a, a strange wake-up call i'd like to apologize to my neighbors who probably got woken up by all the screams on screen not mine um but yeah it was uh it was pretty great and uh yeah i definitely it it definitely kind of like uh made me want to go back and revisit some of the other giallo films that um you know i've, I've kind of had a sort of passing understanding of but never really like properly submerged myself into if you think films don't use color enough nowadays go back and watch a film like this that's so vibrant and lurid as well um david what do you make of this True. this film in particular out of all of these jello films i think it's i think it's a pretty good one i i, I think by the end again in a, in a bit a bit like the same way as as um as, as last night in soho i think it kind of becomes a little bit wrapped up in this this quite hokey mm -hmm. plot who done it plot mechanic uh that 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 I kind of lose a bit of interest um but yeah as 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 Al says yeah this this the, the high style is just mesmerizing and and I I think more so than these kind of like HD shot monstrosities that you get now that this these are the kind of films like the restored version of this seeing it on a kind of you know good TV and with a good sound system is you know that that that's just like pure pure pleasure there um yeah the mannequins are great there, there's these kind of red velour mannequins talking talking of edgar wright again um surely the inspiration for for his kind of blue mannequin alien fight fighting robots <laughs> from uh from world's end yeah um <laughs> and um yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it, it works for me. I think one of the things that really sticks out in this film is like, and and I think when you're watching old films, this it becomes a bit more noticeable. But like in a modern film, violence is very much a kind of part of the scenery. You you know, if if a, if someone hits another person or strangles another person, it's kind of like, well, you know, you expect that from movies now. It's it's just sort of like a trope. But like you, when you watch an older film, sometimes it's, it 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 can actually be quite disturbing to see stuff when you think, oh my god, this this is like happening before the time that this was really allowed to happen, or we people were allowed to sort of see this stuff on the cinema screen. And so some of the kind of 
like there's a, there's a, the first strangling in the film where where a young woman is strangled out in the kind of forecourt of the of the of the fashion house and it goes on for really quite a long time and you know it focuses on the sort of the the, the fingers round the throat and the crushing of the neck and um although it's not kind of gory per se it's really quite horribly disturbing um and the 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 the, the way it kind of leans into something that you could that maybe another filmmaker might have completely cut out you know you could you could almost you know you, 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 if this would film was made in the 40s you'd see a, a woman go ow what's that over in the shadows and then you'd cut to her dead body in the bushes whereas this is like no we're going to show you the whole damn process so um that's definitely something with uh with with, with this film and giallos in general uh, the last thing I say is that my favourite giallo is probably um, Dario Argento's Deep Red. Mm-hmm. That's the one that that I always remember and al- always keen to sort of rewatch. Um, David Hemmings, Goblin score, lots of uh, a really really un- unnerving kind of doll robot mm-hmm. that's on the um that's on the cover of the dvd but only in the film for like five seconds <laughs> um, yeah I, th- I think that that's the yeah. film where all of the elements gel together superbly well yeah that's the thing i think for that film the reason why that one works is because like the mystery element is actually quite compelling and kind of goes goes to a place that's that's quite disturbing um but um yeah but yes, listeners, Blood and Black Lace is a great route into the wonderful and very strange and lurid world of Italian filmmaking from the 60s and, and onwards. Mario Bava uh, uh, worked in so many genres. Just a few years before that, he made a film called Black Sabbath, which is absolutely brilliant, worth watching. Similarly, um, 1960 Black Sunday, some very pioneering horror films before moving into this thriller genre. We also mentioned... Last week's episode, we were talking about Dino De Laurentiis and Flash Gordon and how uh, he, he made some quite uh, cheesy, campy uh, 60s comic book adaptations and Mario Bava directed Danger Diabolic, which is a great film to watch as well. So really strong recommendation. If, if Maybe off the back of this podcast or off the back of watching Last Night in Soho, it introduces you to Italian cinema, then that's fantastic or gives you an excuse to go and revisit these films. So yes, listeners, there was Blood and Black Lace. If you see that film or any of the other films we've talked about on this podcast today, let us know what you make of them at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter or truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Before we go, we've got a wonderful little chat with Susanna Basso of the Climate Crisis Film Festival, which is running from the 1st of November online worldwide at climatecrisisff.co.uk. This is a film festival that showcases stunning, diverse and eye-opening cinema, providing a systemic perspective behind the raw human stories of climate change. Let's have a listen to my chat with Susanna. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us on Truth and Movies. I'd love to hear more about the Climate Crisis Film Festival. Of course, on the podcast in the past, we've covered film festivals like the London Film Festival, Venice, Cannes, Berlin, Rotterdam. But what makes Climate Crisis Film Festival different to those? Hi, Michael. Really lovely to be on this podcast today. Um, 
Yeah, so the Climate Crisis Film Festival is the UK's, and as far as we know, the world's uh, first climate action film festival. And we set it up in 2019 as three young creatives in a corner of Southeast London. I think London in 2019 was going through a bit of a climate awakening. Uh, I remember having to walk to work because Extinction Rebellion was blocking the bridges. And uh, Greta Thunberg and other uh, sort of youth activists were uh, taking the stage for the first time. And I feel like it was impossible not to pay attention to the climate in 2019, uh, 2018, 2019. Um, so I was about to leave London, um, start living as a digital nomad, and my friends and I decided to just set up kind of a bit of a goodbye project uh, to, to our time together in London. And it, it was this event, so we decided to do something creative about climate communication. We would have never expected it to <laughs> take off in the way it did, um, but uh, I think what we did um, that was quite unique at the time is that we looked at climate change as an intersectional crisis. So um, not an environmental issue uh, in a vacuum, but very much a crisis that happens at the intersection between uh, social issues, political issues, economic issues. Um, and I think that um, what motivated us to put on an event like this is that you know, at the beginning, everybody is uh, motivated by a sense of fear and anxiety around climate change. You know, what are we going to do with this? Um, is this uh, crisis completely going to change our lives? Is it going to ruin the world? Is it going to ruin our prospects? Um, what is going to happen to vulnerable communities and so on? Um, but then as soon as you sort of get into the climate movement, uh, you realize that there is an incredible electricity in the air. There's so much excitement. There's so much... Um, you know, sort of um, movement towards solutions. So it's not only, uh, it's not definitely not a movement of fear, it's very much a movement of excitement and positivity. Um, so I think that's what uh, kept us in the movement. And, uh, you know, once you're in it, it's really hard to, um, you know, do anything else with your life because it is um, really infectious, but also, you know, it's just so important. It's, um, you know, kind of an era-defining experience, this of uh, climate change for our generation. And uh, we wanted to tell the story of climate change, uh, tell the story through um, the most underrepresented pr uh, perspectives, um, look at climate culture as it emerges, you know, um, for the first time. We see um, documentaries, film, artworks, design that engages with what is the experience of living through climate change like? Uh, how do we tell that story? So it's not only educational material like um, documentaries about the climate used to be even just five years ago. It, it's becoming more and more, a, you know, an articulation of this um, sort of uh, collective experience. And I found that, that really exciting. So that's why, why we've got a festival, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think as a goodbye project when you're leaving a city, some people would just do a scrapbook of photographs, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but choosing to do a film festival is ambitious. Yeah, it was it was a bit of a random one, I have to say. Looking back, um, I don't know what exactly we were thinking, but we definitely didn't realise that it would, you know, sort of take over our lives in this way. Uh, but we couldn't be any more um, excited about it. Um, you know, I think... Um, you know, before we, I w personally, I was always interested in social issues. I was always interested in the environment. But uh, once you get your sort of 
um, your hands stuck into the, the action of working towards the alternative, the solution to this kind of issues, it, you know, it just becomes um, just ex extremely exciting and, uh, um, you know, sort of motivating. Um, so, yeah, mm. as, a, as a goodbye project, it was, um, you know, a strange one to pick, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's worked also to keep us very connected to London and to the UK, despite being away. Yeah, I'd love to hear about how you go about formulating a festival and a program and around action and solutions. Most other film festivals is about maybe I wouldn't want to say passively, but it's it's more consuming documentaries, educational stuff, as you say, or debate and discussion. But how do would do you see? How do you see translating that into action, climate action? Well, I think that all curation starts from the reception and the spectatorship side. Um, so all curation should be done for the audience uh, rather than, um, you know, through themes or, you know, sort of ideas that you've got in your head. I think you should start from what kind of experience you want to, uh, the audience to have. And in this case, because we're talking about climate change, um, what we want to communicate to the audience is extremely clear. You know, it couldn't be any clearer. Uh, so our, um, uh, the job is really done for us in that sense because we have to be a, a festival for climate action. You know, there isn't any other option within the context of the climate movement. You know, we, it's not enough to showcase. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very important to be able to also communicate what happens afterwards, uh, what happens next. Um, both because, you know, it's a heavy topic and uh, the audience needs to... Um, you know, feel empowered um, to take this into their hands. Um, but also because, um, you know, the perspectives we represent, you know, like we, we, that we platform uh, coming from all over the world, you know, more than 30 countries, you know, on the front lines of climate change, demand this kind of action. They demand, um, uh, you know, work towards climate justice. Uh, so it'd be crazy if, if we didn't engage with that. And luckily, from you know our backgrounds, you know we're multidisciplinary designers, so uh, we're able to think in uh, graphic design terms. We're able to think in web design. Uh, we're you know we're able to sort of articulate these more unconventional formats uh, in the context of a film festival. Um, and we don't do it because we're trying to do something new. Really, we do it just because that's you know kind of how our brain is wired. Um, and uh, I also worked in um, sort of in working in venue management for quite a few years. Um, and I've seen, I don't know, 50 plus Q&As and never got anything out of any of them. So I think that when we started out, I was like, I'm never going to do a Q&A. There must be a better format. There must be a more engaging, sort of proactive format. Uh, so we just have a lot of fun uh, looking at, uh, uh, you know, what we can do to, to engage the audience and, um, you know, sort of... Um, close the gap between knowledge and action uh, as much as possible. So that leads us into maybe what we could expect to see and engage with and be inspired by as part of this program that's running from the 1st of November online. So maybe taking some of those big themes and ideas that we just talked about, what can, you know, what can we see as part of the festival or engage with? Yes, so the format of the festival is a digital one. Um, it's worldwide, completely for free. Um, and the reason for that is that we want to make it as accessible and easy to engage with as possible. So people can just decide to tune in at a time that is convenient to them, just you know, hop around the program. I think that it's very important with a topic like climate change 
to have the chance to be inspired to watch something that you, perhaps you didn't expect uh, to be interested in. So when you're going to like um, a, you know, a set time, uh, you, know, you're, you, you commit to attend a specific event, you in most cases choose something that you're already interested in. Uh, whereas with a more on-demand format, uh, you allow this sort of fluidity of the experience a bit more. And, uh, you know, the way it appears, it's simply on our website. Um, it looks, you know, let's say like a, a streaming service, you could say, but, you know, it's, it's curated from um, the perspective of a festival experience. So you've got screenings, you've got speaking events. Um, we do Ignite sessions mostly, um, which are like a format where um, different speakers present an idea uh, for an alternative, a solution, something like that. So it's a quite sort of a quick fire format similar to like mini TED talks you could say um, and uh, and then we always have plan action packs as well which are like sort of uh, custom designed um, web pages where you've got lots of different resources and links to action and you know like ways of engaging beyond um, the two weeks of the festival um, so that's that's kind of what it looks like um, and in terms of the content that we've got uh, that we're sort of giving the platform over to. It's uh, um, films by underrepresented filmmakers. We are running the first, um, first, first ever, as far as we know, award for a climate film that is uh, exclusively open to um, BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous and People of Color uh, directors. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that award uh, in competition program, we also have, you know, a variety of... Uh, uh, shorts and feature films and you know a lot of speakers from all over the world with a big focus on non-western perspectives um, and uh, again a big fo focus on um, the articulation of this climate experience you know uh, how do we live through climate change and how do we think of alternatives mm. i'd love to know if you you know you have the experience as you said with venue management very much in person and then the pandemic had this gave us this pendulum swing towards online film festivals and reviewing platforms. But it seems that that's a great opportunity for this festival in particular to be able to make it free and worldwide simultaneously. So is that a great opportunity for you and your colleagues? Yes, I think, um, you know, this thing of the pandemic upending what festivals used to be like, I personally see that as a very positive thing, you know, uh, out of the catastrophe of COVID, I think this is maybe one of you know, personally, something that has been very positive. It's something that suited us particularly well, because as I said, we have a multidisciplinary design background. So it was easy enough for us to make the jump to a digital format, imagine how that could be leveraged. Um, but I think it's also very important for the film, indus uh, film industry and the festival industry as, a, as, you know, more broadly, to understand that you know, there were audiences that were not served uh, well by the, um, you know, sort of in-person events, you know, ticketed events, you know, uh, uh, prestigious venues kind of events, um, that there was an untapped audience that did deserve um, to, 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 to be catered uh, for, and especially with something like climate change. Environmental film festivals, um, generally speaking, I'm saying, would would cater mostly towards a white upper middle class um, sort of audience, whereas uh, we we try to engage the the groups and the communities that are most um, 
you know, affected by climate change. So whether it's young people or it's, uh, you know, uh, non-Western uh, countries or it's, uh, you know, communities of color, you know, communities at the margins. I think it's uh, the, the digital medium uh, allows for a lot more opportunities in that direction. And I am not saying that we're um, in any way we've solved that problem at all. I think we need to do so much more work in terms of accessibility and inclusivity with the festival. That is, you know, uh, very much our plan for the next few years. But I think that the digital medium is something that is going to stay for us because it allows us to to do more and more in that direction. So this is amazing. I can't wait to dip in from the 1st of November. For people like me who find it very hard to make time to watch stuff, you know, the laptop for me is working all day and then in the evening it's childcare and dinner and washing up in bed. How do we start? How, would you recommend any route into the programme or really is it just suited to dipping in whatever catches your fancy it is definitely suited to dipping in and dipping out you know like you know sort of kind of exploring it at your own pace um but you know we have four nominees for this uh, um ocean bottle film award um and why don't you start there it's just one hour and 20 minutes of your time and it's four films from countries that you might have never seen films before from um so we've got nicaragua uh, indigenous hawaii um, indigenous Mexico and uh, um, and the Philippines. Um, you know, it's countries that you know perspectives that you might have not come across before. Uh, it's uh, four beautiful films, uh, and it's uh, you know a very quick way to sort of uh, you know get 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 um, you know get started with uh, a program on climate change, and then you can just uh, take it from there. We're going to have like highlighted sections and so on. Susanna. Thank you for joining us and best of luck with the festival. Listeners, you can catch up with the Climate Crisis Film Festival at climatecrisisff.co.uk, screening online from the 1st of November to the 14th. Susanna, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks once again to Susanna Basso for joining us on the podcast. You can find out more at climatecrisisff.co.uk. And listeners, that's your lot. Up next week, we have Eternals, The Card Counter, and in Film Club, since the BFI are re-releasing this film on Blu-ray, it's the cult classic, Out of the Blue. David, Al, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a pleasure talking through these films with you. Listeners, please subscribe wherever you pod, and if you can leave a review on your podcast player of choice, we'd love it if you left one for us as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. It's hosted by me, Michael Leader, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Al Horner. The podcast is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel and edited by Steph Watts and James Payne. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.